0: All I could do was bake as fast as I could. Charles was out front apologizing to everyone. And I think that is also one of the reasons why we got a second chance is people genuinely saw us working as hard as we could, trying our best, and that really goes a long way. But you can't just scale up your recipes and buy new equipment and all that overnight. So there were weeks on end, if not months, where we were counting the people in line, scribbling on a notepad what they were allowed to buy. Sometimes they were capped at one cupcake each. That did not go over well. And at the same time, Charles and I were drinking from a fire hose. We didn't have time to hire a staff. So we were doing double and triple shifts. There were nights when we just curled up on the bakery floor with an apron as a pillow because there was no time to go back home and get any shut eye before we had to come and preheat the ovens again for the next day. It was grueling.
1: That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're gonna learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. On this episode of How Success Happens, I got to sit down with Candace Nelson, Along with her husband, she co-founded Sprinkles, literally the world's first cupcake bakery. She founded it in 2005. And since then, Sprinkles has sold more than 75 million cupcakes nationwide. She was the originator of the modern-day cupcake store before all the others entered the space. It's a good thing she didn't stay stuck in corporate America, and she actually went for it, even though so many people thought she was out of her mind at the time for starting a store that just sold cupcakes. Since then, Candice founded Pizana, a chain of pizza restaurants and CN2 Ventures, a venture studio that invests in young consumer businesses. In addition to entrepreneurship, many people know Candace as the executive producer and judge on Netflix's Sugar Rush, and of course, her role as a judge on Food Network's Cupcake Wars. I started out by asking Candace about growing up overseas in Southeast Asia, where cupcakes weren't so much of a popular food.
0: That's right. I grew up actually most of my childhood in Southeast Asia, and that plays into my story really so much because I became obsessed with anything having to do with my homeland, with American pop culture with American desserts. And certainly when I was growing up as a little, a little girl and I had a craving for cupcake, a rice crispy treat or a brownie, I couldn't get them at the corner store in Indonesia. (laughs) So I had to bake them myself. And I spent a lot of hours in the kitchen with my mom baking from her joy of cooking cookbook and, you know, recreating those flavors of home.
1: And it's so interesting because, right, you couldn't go down and, and uh, to the store and buy some Duncan Hines and do it easy. You probably had to do a lot of this, I would assume, from scratch.
0: Oh, it was all from scratch. And I loved it. It was it was so much fun, you know, turning flour and chocolate and vanilla into these delicious creations. I mean, there's so much science involved, but at the time, I just kind of thought it was magic.
1: Interesting. And then, you know, tell me about also growing up overseas overseas. Uh, in in Indonesia. And what was it like? Is there anything that you took from that that really helped you now and as a business person and an entrepreneur? Was there anything you can recall that really may have been an influence?
0: Absolutely. So I love food. I've devoted my life to food first with sprinkles and now with my pizza concept pizza on it. And what I love about it is It really brings people together and unifies them. It's such a joyful experience to gather around a table, to bake together in a kitchen. And it gave me such a sense of belonging. And I think that that's what I've always sort of chased in my life and my career is that that sense of connection to home in America that I didn't have as a kid. And that's been sort of a, a thread that has kind of gone through all of my career experiences at this point.
1: So how old were you when you ended up coming back to America?
0: I ended up going to boarding school and then college in the U.S. So 10th grade, I was back in the States, but my parents were still very far away in Indonesia at the time.
1: And what was that like for you as, you know, coming here as a 10th grader and just going to boarding school after you've grown up in this completely distant Uh, land. What was that feeling like? I
0: think I had to learn early to be really independent and enter a room and just make things happen. You know, I was constantly having to make friends all the time, make new friends, find my lunch table mates. And, you know, because the expat life is very transient. So whether we were moving or not, my friends were always moving. And so I just had to kind of figure out how to make friends and advocate for myself and be really independent from an early age.
1: Interesting. And then tell me about, you know, as you, you end up going to school, college and you start, I believe, by working in finance. Now, you don't seem to strike me as someone like the passion you talk about, uh, mm-hmm. like food. Like, Did you have that passion for finance?
0: Absolutely not. But you'll have to remember that I grew up actually in a very non-entrepreneurial household. My dad was a corporate lawyer. He was legal for a couple of different multinational corporations was a very risk-averse household. We leaned really heavily into education. And I always imagined for my future that I would just follow this corporate track. I didn't have many models for entrepreneurship in my life. So after college, I was recruited into investment bank, which I thought was perfect. It was just prestigious and it would open up doors for me. And then That was actually in San Francisco at the time during the dot-com boom. So then I went to work for an internet startup, but I mean, it was well-funded. This wasn't really a scrappy internet startup. And then of course the dot-com bust happened. So it was the first time that I was like, Hey, hold on a second. I was doing all the right things. And then I just ended up without a job that's not supposed to happen. So I kind of opened my eyes. It opened my eyes for the first time as to what was really security. And then a few months later, 9-11 happened. I actually was on my honeymoon at the time. And um, my husband and I were in the airport on the way back to the States and saw like just something crazy going on the TV screens. Couldn't figure out what was going on. It was all in French. And then sure enough, you know, it was revealed and just such a dark shadow over my sort of new newlywed bliss and optimism for the future. And when I finally got back home, it was the first time in my life that I really reflected on what it was I wanted to do. And I realized it wasn't crunching numbers. That didn't light me up at all. And so instead of going to business school, which was definitely my next logical step, I decided to go to pastry school.
1: That's incredible because for you, especially coming from that background where you do come from this risk-averse family and it's ingrained in you and Mm -hmm. people come from all different types of families, that must've been a very difficult, I believe, decision for you to do at that time. Was that very hard on you? And even though you were older, talking to your parents about it?
0: It was a super scary decision. I had to face the fear of my own failure, the possibility that I would just fall flat on my face, but I also had to face the fear of the disapproval of others. Right. And not necessarily that people were disapproving of it, but just that they were kind of questioning it. Like you're going to throw away this lucrative career to go to pastry school. What's going on? Is this an early midlife crisis? And as I said, I didn't have many models for entrepreneurship. And actually, caveat to that, when I was working in investment banking, I was working with entrepreneurs, but this was a different type of entrepreneurship, right? These were like tech savants and engineers who were taking over Silicon Valley. I, I could not relate to that. That was not my skill set. Yeah. So, what ended up happening was I went to pastry school. I realized I loved it. I love getting my hands in dough and chocolate and making beautiful creations things that weren't tangible that people could enjoy. And that felt really rewarding to me. So I set about to make a business out of it. And at first I started with special occasion cakes, these sort of really artful, multi-tiered, multi-layered cakes and quickly came to realize that's not great business because people aren't ordering those very often. And so I remember walking through the supermarket one day and passing the bakery and seeing all of these cupcakes that were sort of shelf stable and the frosting was made with shortening and the decorations were plastic cupcake picks and they were all stacked up and I thought, golly, those cupcakes are sad. (laughs) The cupcake needs a makeover. The cupcake really needs a makeover. And so that was the beginning of the journey of the first Cupcakes Only Bakery. But to your point about jumping off this cliff to entrepreneurship, I really give my husband a lot of credit. He was my co-founder in the business and he also was in finance. And he said to me, I think you've got something here. And if you perfect the recipes... I'll go in on this with you. So as much as people didn't understand what I was doing, I have to say they really didn't understand what he was doing because he had his MBA and all of his banker friends were like, they just could not wrap their banker heads around it.
1: Uh, First off, God bless you that you both are able to work together or were. Secondly, this guy, your husband saying, I will leave and... Shows you he's a great guy and really his love for you and maybe really <laughs> what the opportunity was. But I would have figured, OK, especially in this case, he would stay in this corporate, you know, and you could try out this. But you both jumped off the diving board together. It had to be ultra scary.
0: It was really scary. We took what little savings we had and we said, OK, we've got two years to figure this out. And we started, I just started baking cupcakes out of my kitchen and just sort of testing the market in a small way and perfecting the recipes. I mean, we used to sit around the dining room table with our notepads and taste batch after batch of, of cupcakes and make notes. And I'd go tweak and tweak and until they were perfect. And then in the meantime, you know, once I got a little traction, people started ordering for me right out of my West Hollywood kitchen. I actually even started getting some celebrity orders because at this point we had moved down to Los Angeles and we started looking for a location, but that took a long time because we had no experience. It was a tight real estate market. And once again, people thought the idea was kind of ridiculous. Also keep in mind It was the height of the low-carb diet craze at the time. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So it was really this idea of this temple to carbs in Los Angeles at the height of the low-carb diet craze flew in the face of what anyone thought was logical, realistic,
1: or possible. It's really true when you think about that in LA, in a town that's very big on fitness and health, and thinking about it when you say that, you know, you really had to have a love for this and you really almost like your own it seems like personal mission did you feel that that you were going to do anything to make this successful
0: oh yes and i think that's where passion comes into play i just was indomitable I was unstoppable. Like I did not care what people thought of my idea. I thought it was brilliant. And that just fueled me. But not only that, it was this energy that kind of drew people to me. Mm. So I remember having a conversation with a wholesale ingredient supplier. And, you know, these are the people that that bring us our chocolate and our vanilla and all of our luxurious, you know, European ingredients. They don't sell to people working out of their West Hollywood apartments. They sell to cafes and bakeries and restaurants. But I was on the phone with this guy and I was like, I know I look sort of one-legged right now, but I promise you I'm going to be your biggest client one day. And we did end up being that biggest client.
1: I love that because I love that passion. And you know, what I really like is the fact or what I believe you really... Where at the beginning or started. Nowadays, you walk down the street. I live here in New York City and there's like cupcake place number one number. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't keep up with mm-hmm. and I'm blown away. But what was it inside of you and your husband that you really thought there was going to be a market for this? Because when you started and did this, I wouldn't even be able to imagine like these types of shops
0: There was no such thing as a cupcake bakery, right? So even when we were looking for packaging for our cupcakes, there was no standard cupcake box. There were only cake boxes. So we had to use those. And of course, our cupcakes were sort of sliding around inside until we could get enough money to place our big order for the custom box that would hold them in place. But I think what I felt comfortable with was the fact that cupcakes are innately American. This is going back to my America obsession again. (laughs) And so I wasn't sort of bringing some esoteric thing to the United States and having to educate people. I knew everyone already loved a cupcake. They were part of our culture. They were part of our upbringing. We all had warm, fuzzy feelings about cupcakes because we had celebrated birthdays with cupcakes. But I was just giving people more reason to love them again because at the time they were just sort of kid fare. They were, you know, stick them in a lunchbox. They were an afterthought. I wanted to make them elegant, aspirational, and giftable.
1: Yeah, it's just funny. Bring back memories. I'm just thinking of myself as a child. And like the only cupcake I remember was like the hostess cupcake with that little white scribbling on the chocolate. Like no one really took it to that next level. Mm -hmm. And, you saw this opportunity and you start the business out of your house Mm -hmm. uh, in West Hollywood. And then how do you fund? Did did you look for funding or did you do this all? Was this all with money you'd saved? Mm -hmm. How did you go about the financial part of the business? We
0: had a little bit of money saved up. This wasn't some big sort of savings, but enough to live on modestly for a couple of years. And develop the branding and renovate a single location. But even then, money was really tight. We had to be really careful with it. We were still using my Saab hatchback, which my parents had given me used when I went to college and the the roof liner was starting to sag. And so anytime we'd drive anyone in my car, they'd be like having to hold up the roof line. I mean, it was, (laughs) and then at one point I remember my car just totally gave out. And we were considering buying a new car, but we actually needed to buy a huge stand mixer. So instead of the new car, we got the mixer. I mean, these, this is what you do when you are funding a small business. There's no, even when we were cash flowing, it wasn't like we were taking anything home. It was all going into investment and fueling the growth of the business. Because I had always imagined that Sprinkles could be in every city across America That was my vision for it.
1: And let's talk about that because, well, well, first, let's talk about was there a moment where going from that kitchen table and take us through where you do open a location, but was there a moment where you were like, you know what? This is a viable business. And I really see what my vision had been and this being able to be in every city. Was there that kind of aha moment when something went right?
0: Well, I think I felt pretty good about my cupcakes when Tyra Banks' producer called me and I was, again, just working out of my little kitchen and ordered cupcakes for Tyra Banks' 30th birthday. I was like, (laughs) I've got my first solid star uh, order and I am still just in my kitchen. So I felt good about that. I had developed a loyal, devoted, but small following of people who had found me and were ordering cupcakes regularly for their events. But opening a retail store and putting hundreds of thousands of dollars into white oak cabinetry and beautiful fixtures and creating this whole experience to live up to this elevated cupcake, that's a whole nother story, right? That's scary. And one thing we did have on our side was there was this email newsletter called Daily Candy who had found us. Do you remember it?
1: Yeah, I certainly do. They, anything in daily candy, they would write about. And interestingly enough, I totally remember that. And that was like, I just remember like my wife or a lot of women would read that. And that was like their Bible. Like, oh my God, it's in daily candy. So what happened?
0: And it was the height of the power of daily candy when they found us. And people always say, well, how did they find you? You were working out in your kitchen. I'm like,
1: they were good at their
0: job. Like their job was to sniff out the sort of inside scoop on what was hip and happening. And lucky for me, they thought that was me. So when we were working, you know, on the store, and they said, "Okay, what's your anticipated opening date?" We told them we wanted to push it. Actually, we weren't ready. And they said, "Well, if you push the opening, you lose the story." And we we're like, "Okay, we're opening." <laughs> and sure enough, we had just this line of fabulous tastemakers, the uh, Daily Candy Readers lined up on opening day. But the problem was, I had thought that people were going to show up and buy one or two cupcakes at a time, because that's how people enjoy cupcakes, right? As a little snack. No, they had driven across town. They had found parking in Beverly Hills. They were going home with two to three dozen, and they wanted to try every single flavor. And so within hours, our case was bare. I was in the back of the kitchen, sweating profusely, baking as fast as I could, but we could not keep up with demand. Like my recipes didn't even, my recipes were yielding two dozen at a time. So very quickly, our dream became a bit of a nightmare because our happy line of customers became an angry mob and they were not happy. People in LA do not like to be told they cannot have what they want.
1: <laughs> I can <didn't> see that.
0: <laughs> Frankly, no one does, but this was, a, this was definitely a, a crowd that doesn't like to be told that. And I don't recommend not delivering on your product when you're opening a business but for some reason people gave us a second chance and what ended up happening was we were already doing something so curious you know people were already scratching their heads at the concept and then on top of that we were always sold out it almost added to the buzz and drove the desire even more
1: i was going to ask that you know it's interesting like at a club or wherever you might go you know if if there's a line outside right. oh well there must be But in your business, when you are making a profit off each cupcake you sell, that first day must have been incredible the way it felt. The highs and the lows. The (laughs) highest and then the low of being like, how am I going to bake enough cupcakes for tomorrow? What were you thinking?
0: I just was a deer in headlights. and. All I could do was bake as fast as I could. Charles was out front apologizing to everyone. And I think that is also one of the reasons why we got a second chance is people genuinely saw us working as hard as we could, trying our best. And that really goes a long way. But you can't just scale up your recipes and buy new equipment and all that overnight. So there were weeks on end, if not months, where we were counting the people in line, scribbling on a notepad what they were allowed to buy. Sometimes they were capped at one cupcake each. That did not go over well. And at the same time, Charles and I were drinking from a fire hose. We didn't have time to hire a staff. So we were doing double and triple shifts. I I mean, there were nights when we just curled up on the on the bakery floor with an apron as a pillow because there was no time to go back home and get any shut-eye before we had to come and preheat uh-huh. the ovens again for the next day. It was grueling.
1: That's incredible. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of How Success Happens is being presented by State Farm. Being a small business owner can be so fulfilling rewarding, and let's be honest, a little scary from time to time. Doing your own thing and being your own boss is great, but sometimes it can make you feel like you're all alone, especially when things aren't going great. Well, the folks at State Farm want you to know You're not alone. State Farm has thousands of agents who are small business owners too, so they know what it takes to protect everything you've worked so hard for. State Farm has an assortment of insurance policies for small businesses that can be tailored to your needs. So whether you're a hairstylist, an electrician, or a florist, State Farm agents are ready to help. Learn more and find an agent today at statefarm.com slash small business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. So take us back then to this incredible start, right? From first off, just going for it, which I admire because knowing, you know, I remember my first business too, and it was before anyone wa- was going to be an entrepreneur back in the 90s, <laughs> being like, what you're leaving? Funny enough, I was working at Lehman Brothers and they're like, right. You're leaving the safe bet, <laughs> and then you're gonna go work out of your house. Like it was just, but take me back. So you do that, you go for it, all of a sudden it's exploding. But now you need to scale it. How are you able to do that while? You were selling so much inventory while you were just like seemingly struggling to survive each day. Take me through those next several months or years and and how you were able to come out on top.
0: It really boils down to team and 2020 hindsight would have been nice to have hired before opening any employees that could have helped us out. But Charles and I white knuckled it for the first few weeks and months. We had friends who just felt sorry for us that were volunteering on the weekends to box cupcakes, but eventually we found great people. I mean, literally, I remember Nicole, who still works with us to this day. She came in, she was a student at UCLA. She came in and she was like, do you guys need anyone? And I was like, yes. How soon can you start? So it really was just out of desperation. And then soon enough, I was able to step away and scale up my recipes and buy new equipment. And it wasn't like we had all the time in the world because overnight, seemingly, our idea had gone from being a, that will never work to the media was reporting on this phenomenon in Beverly Hills, there were lines down the door. And guess what? Where you're successful competition will follow. And in our case, there was a lot of imitation as well. Oh, so great. all of imagine. these, you know, we went from, oh my God, look, we, our idea worked to reading in the papers about all these cupcake bakeries that started popping up across the country. And that was like, oh no, we don't have much, like we got to go for it. We got to scale this business as fast as you, as we can. But The way we decided to scale it, which was company owned and Charles and I would go to each location and hire and train and make sure the product was perfect. The experience was perfect. It takes a long time. So it wasn't something that we could just, we didn't end up franchising. So its growth was slow and and arduous, but we did keep um, an eye on the quality for sure
1: how come you didn't decide to franchise, especially at that time when you're so everyone was popping up and, and, and seeing the success you had. And like you said, like at that point I would be like, shoot, we got to get out there, you know? And, and like you said, it's very hard to, you're building your own store, going around and trusting in people. How come you you decided not to franchise?
0: Well, people were begging us for franchises, not just our customers and people who were traveling from different parts of the country or world, but also really seasoned you know, franchise operators. But a few things. One is Sprinkles was like my first child and I was a helicopter parent. I was so focused on the details. I was so protective, I was so controlling. I have learned since then not to let perfectionism get in the way of progress. But for a while, I was just I had a chokehold on this business. Now, in my defense, the difference between a memorable cupcake and an average cupcake is not that much. It's quite nuanced. So, I really wanted to make sure everybody was understanding like the quality and the and how special a sprinkles cupcake was. But I think also Because we were working in something that was essentially a commodity, it was so important for us to really lean into brand. And I couldn't, the brand was so special. And I I wanted to make sure that no matter where anyone went, they felt that same sprinkles experience. I just couldn't hand over the reins to someone else. So scaling was slow, methodical, but I have to say, the company culture, fast forward to 2012, we sold the majority of the business, but the company culture has outlived us. I mean, I went into the Beverly Hills store the other day and most of our kitchen crew is still there from 2005, which in the food world is incredibly special oh.
1: and rare. How incredible is that for you to walk? Isn't yeah. that amazing? And It was emotional it, actually. Yeah. How did it feel? Cause these people still have jobs because of you.
0: One of the most rewarding things about growing sprinkles was being able to bring our employees along with us and watch them grow and give them opportunity to grow in their career. That was, I think my favorite part. So, and these people were my family, you know, I, I frosted side by side with them day by day. And, and we got to know each other and their family, they, they, my kitchen crew in Beverly Hills threw me a baby shower for my first child. I mean, it's just, there's nothing like it.
1: It's amazing. Tell me about ending up selling the business, what was it? Because it sounds like, especially as a lot of entrepreneurs, perfectionism, controlling the brand, but what was it that really gave you or or you gave yourself permission to really sell this business?
0: Well, it was really a personal decision for me. I had at that time... I had two little boys and as I said Charles and I were very hands on in terms of growing our business we would basically move to the new location for a while and make sure everything was exactly up to sprinkle standards make sure we hired and trained everybody in that sprinkle's ethos and that's just how we did it a lot easier to do when your kids are little and portable and you know I had an incredible nanny who helped me with that and we would all travel together But once they had commitments, school, sports, it just got to be harder. And I felt very torn. It also was exhausting to scale a brick and mortar business over all of those years, very physically labor intensive. By the time we sold it, we had from coast to coast. So there was never a moment in the day where there wasn't someone working in a Sprinkles bakery. So those calls could come in all night long and... So that was just the the decision I made. And not that it wasn't hard because I was so identified. My identity was so wrapped up in, in this business. I was the queen of cupcakes. I was Mrs. Sprinkles. So it was a hard decision, but one I made for the sake of my family.
1: Tell me about what you're up to now, because I know you obviously had the cupcake wars and the TV experience. And tell me about that and and really your latest business and, and where you are right now as a person too, with, you know, like you said, you had to walk away young kids, but give us a, an idea of what you're up to. Well,
0: I threw myself into all the PTA stuff for a few years <laughs> and then opportunity found me again. I was at a pizza party and at a friend's house and I took one bite of this pizza. And I thought, this is what's going on with this pizza. This is exceptional. So I went in search of the pizza chef who was over by the wood-burning uh, oven. And he was Danielli Uditi, our now head chef and partner at Pizzana. had just immigrated from Naples, Italy with $200 in his pocket and his grandmother's sourdough starter. And his story was just so fantastic. And of course we were both bakers. I mean, we had different types of dough that we worked with, but we both were very simpatico and we chatted all night. And he ended up confiding in me that he'd always wanted to open his own restaurant. That was his dream. Come to the United States, open a pizza restaurant. And I couldn't help myself. I was like, I have to do that with you. And so sure enough, Pizzana was born Our first location was in the Brentwood neighborhood in Los Angeles, but we are expanding within Southern California and now moving into the Texas market. We're shipping our pizzas frozen through Gold Belly, but it's a very unique style of pizza. It's rooted in this Neapolitan tradition, but it has been married with American preferences and tastes because Americans like to pick up their za. They like to pick up their pizza, right? They love a slice. Especially
1: New Yorkers, I must say. That's right. (laughs) Unlike our ex-mayor who eats it with a fork and knife uh, (laughs) because he was from Boston. But anyway. That's okay. That's
0: okay. Everyone has their own personal style. But yeah, I think true Neapolitan pizza, you do eat with a fork and knife because it's soupy in the middle. But Daniele originally comes from a family of bread bakers. So he has this great technique that allows the pizza. You still have that great character, chew and char, but you can pick up a slice. Mm. And we opened to incredible critical acclaim. We we're Michelin Bib Gourmand awarded. You know, we've been covered on the chef show. Daniele is now head pizza judge on a Hulu show called Best in Dough. And it's been a really, really fun ride. I think I just love the idea of elevating simple pleasures, foods that people love, but making them surprising again.
1: I mean, pizza and cupcakes, you can't go wrong.
0: I'm popular with the kids.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I would bet because I know my own daughter, when I mentioned I was going to have you on the podcast and we've had over 150 people. It was the first time she's a little baker, 12 years old, loves it, like was jumping up and down, you know, like, Uh... and she loves to bake, bake like cupcakes and cookies. And so she really was super interested And with what you do. It's pretty amazing. But what I really love is, you know, the story of your partner. It's kind of similar to you. Like you came, you know, and brought that from overseas and it must make you feel so good to have partnered and to be successful with someone who came here with $200 in their pocket. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel Awesome.
0: I love the idea of supporting other passionate founders' dreams and that's why I wrote this book, Sweet Success. I was already mentoring people on the side in angel investing in female-founded, underrepresented founded businesses and I thought I need to do, I need a larger platform to do this. I want to give women in particular the mindset and the actionable tools to bring their dreams to life. There's only so many hours in the day there's only so many businesses i can you know start and be operational in so how am i going to help more people and so that's why that's why i wrote the book but you're right i mean watching people achieve their dreams is incredible it's the most rewarding feeling and it's been really fun too to as you said i had cupcake wars on the food network sugar rush on netflix but now i am stepping behind the camera as a producer and a co-creator for Daniele to have his time in the spotlight on this best in dough show on Hulu. I Fun love to see it. it from both sides.
1: I love it. And you know, just in, in thinking about it, you had said, we talked earlier, you said 2020 hindsight and thinking back and you're very controlling. And what did you learn from sprinkles? And were you able to change some of those things that you maybe didn't like so much about what you were doing in this new business?
0: Well, there are a few things that I brought from Sprinkles to Pizzana. One really was the power of brand. I mean, Sprinkles is what Sprinkles is because of the product, but also because of the brand. In 2008, we were opening our most expensive store, biggest store to date in Palo Alto, and the market started you know, crashing. And I remember watching the news and Charles and I just were looking at each other. We were like, we are selling fancy cupcakes. People are losing their homes. Like we're dead. This is it. It's over. And we proceeded to scale the majority of our business over the next two years. And I think that has to be because of brand. It was so special to people. There was such an emotional connection to our brand that they weren't willing to cut it out of their budget. It was that small piece of luxury that they were going to make room for. And so I brought that with me to Pizzana. Brand is incredibly important at Pizzana and also the idea of personal brand, right? How I kind of, what I like to say in the book is taking off your apron and stepping into your personal brand to amplify your company brand that's what Daniele is doing for Pizzana as well. But also I really believe that you don't have to be a category creator to be successful. You can reinvent something that's classic, something that's already beloved, but do it in an innovative way that makes people pay attention. I mean, Sprinkles didn't invent the cupcake. Pizzana definitely didn't invent pizza, but we have looked at those beloved foods through fresh eyes.
1: Yeah. You know, if you were to give some advice, we have obviously for entrepreneur, this podcast, we have a lot of people who want to be entrepreneurs. We have a lot of young people who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs. We have a lot of people sitting in corporate America who are on that diving board wanting to take that jump. You know, I want to ask you because you brought it up. I think a lot of that fear, there's so much fear fear a lot of times with what other people will think, which which mm-hmm. you said. I went through the same exact thing. What would you say as advice to anyone who might be worried or thinking about you know what other people think? And then also any other tips you might have for people just looking to take that first step?
0: Okay. I'm going to start with that, how to face that fear part. There is a little bit of a loneliness factor with entrepreneurship because you're kind of going off on your own. You're pursuing this vision that not everybody else is bought into. And I had this idea at the time that it really was me sort of taking on the world solo. And I really did not do a good job of nurturing my support system, whether it was just surrounding myself with friends who were like, you got this, whether or not they believed it or not whether it was joining a entrepreneur's association or what have you, like entrepreneurship is a lonely road anyway. So find your community, find your co-founder who is going to be your emotional support like I did with my husband, but then also find your larger network that gets it. There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there now and there's a lot more support than when you and I were first going about it, right? And even just things like, listening to podcasts like this, like filling your life with inspiration that builds you up and keeping your eye on the vision for the future. Like what will it feel like to achieve that goal that will drown out all of the noise and the naysaying around you? I believe. And then just in terms of starting it, it's all in the action. It really is. And action begets more action. Action begets more momentum. So even if you're not feeling it, if you're taking those first steps, you can start to build the momentum. You can start to build the confidence through taking those steps. And listen, there's a lot of dreamers out there, but the difference between the dreamers and the doers, it's the action. In the early days of sprinkles, Beverly Hills, people came in and said, this was my idea. And at first I was a little taken aback because I thought, Oh, I thought I was so original. Like, what do you mean? This was your idea. And what I realized was they were really just highlighting the fact that I had done it, but they hadn't. So take those baby steps and they will lead to all of a sudden it'll be like a snowball rolling downhill.
1: I love it. Just such an inspirational story. And I love how it was so gritty. You chose not to follow kind of that path that had been, you thought had been set for you in life and you jump into something where you have such a love and passion for, it's so obviously it comes through and you made a success out of it. And, and that really, to me is what I love about entrepreneurship, especially Mm -hmm. when, you focus on something you love and make it successful. I would imagine that like, there's no better feeling in the world to be like, I did this, I went into baking even, and and you did it prior to like nowadays, like mm-hmm. that's gotta be- That's got to really make you feel great.
0: It's so fulfilling. I think, listen, there are so many lows of entrepreneurship, but the highs just can't be beat. You know, this feeling of bringing your vision into the world, bringing it into reality, like there's no better feeling than that. And that's why I want to help other people do it too and do it the right way.
1: Yeah. If you had one last piece of advice for any of those entrepreneurs that are out there who maybe have been thrown to the mat you know, I always wonder to myself how many businesses didn't happen because people quit because that first issue, or if there's one piece of advice you could give to any of those folks that are in it right now, trying to start and kind of getting thrown back, what would it be?
0: Well, I would just bring them back to a time when we had just lost our possibility of leasing our third space with sprinkles. And I remember getting in the car and thinking, Oh my God, this is, this actually, this isn't going to happen. Is it like, this is just a pipe dream. We're like the third landlord has turned us down. And I look back to those locations. And I think if I had opened sprinkles in any of those locations, it would never have been the brand it, it was, it is. And so sometimes those challenges really all the time, right? Those challenges are for a reason and they are steering you on a new path that is gonna open up way more opportunity. So I really do believe that. And listen, I I was about ready to throw in the towel. I was like, okay, this the writing's on the wall. But then Beverly Hills, we originally that landlord had said no to us. And I called back and we turned that no into a yes. So keep persevering.
1: I love it. Candace, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure such a a pleasure
0: thank you so much for having me
1: yes and good luck with the pizza cupcakes Pizza! i don't know what can you do after that that it's a
0: potent combination i know maybe i need to start (laughs) a jam
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) that would be a good idea we did have the uh Founder of Planet Fitness on here. We maybe maybe we could work a uh, you know, some type of um deal out or Yeah,
0: let's do a little yeah. partnership. <laughs> no, Brandon, be very complimentary to one another.
1: Thank you so much. That was Thank
0: great. you. Have a good one. Say hi to your daughter for me.
1: I definitely will. She is this is probably the only podcast of mine that she listens to out of 150. <laughs> All right. Well take care. Bye bye. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.